Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I will do my best <laughs> to project my voice. Can you make this a little bit shorter? Sure. Yeah, just bring Higher. your seat closer. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tell me. That's fine. Thanks. Um, in an unusual moment for Signal Church, I actually had some AV slides prepared, wow. which we won't be seeing today. <laughs> That's fine. But I'm more actually worried about projecting my voice. So if you can't hear me, just um, wave and I'll try and speak louder again. So good morning. There's quite a lot of us here today, some visitors, but most of you I recognize. But a special welcome to the visitors, including my mom, who's just semi-graced. And my brother, and thank you to all the people from my um, weekly nightclub who are here today. Um, so my name's Leanne. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a mother of three and married to Rare, who's looking after the youngest one at the back there. I've got a very dry sense of humor, and um, there's two other reasons why you should listen to me today. One is because this is quite short, <laughs> and the other is that I've engaged a lot with um, personal doubts over the years. I've done a lot of reading, so I don't know all the answers, but I do think I understand the questions, so wow. hopefully I can speak to some of your questions. Wow. Um, and as Terence said, this is our second last message on 2 Corinthians, um, and I'm just going to tell you, for those of you like me, like to know what's coming <laughs> in this message, we are going to first just have a look at Paul and his relationship with the church briefly, because it's quite important for understanding where we are in the message. And then I'm going to read the verses, and at that point we are past a third of the way. <laughs> and then we're just going to look at, I've got three M's. Three M's. Yeah, guys. And lastly, I've got just two or three minutes on um, loneliness. Um, and then you'll know we're done. All right. So, starting with Paul, he's the author of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, he was, we've heard a couple of weeks ago from Colin, he was very short. Um, I took a photo of Rhea on his knees, and that's how short he was. And he had red hair, and he was a Turkish Jew. Um, he was a very really well-versed rabbi, and he, before his conversion, he was on a vindic pretty much a personal vindictive mis uh, mission to round up all the Christians and stop their message. And then on the road to Damascus, he, he met the risen Jesus and changed from being this vindictive Jew who hated Christians to dedicating the rest of his life, which was many years, to spreading the message of Jesus. And as Colin pointed out a couple of weeks ago, he's one of those few people who's actually basically, in a way, immortal because we hear his words all the time um, in weddings. It's been 2,000 years. This particular passage you definitely wouldn't have heard in a wedding. <laughs> so I'm going to read it to you just now. Um, so almost 20 years after that conversion on the road to Damascus, um, Paul moved to Corinth and he was there for 18 months and he developed a very close relationship with the Corinthian church. But he didn't take money from them, he was sponsored by another church in Macedonia, which is quite important to this passage. Um, so they became like family to one another, Paul and the church. Paul saw them almost as like his baby. He was their founder and they were his passion project. Um, and after 18 months, he'd established them to the point that he went on another mission. But in his absence from Corinth, all the things that built trust between him and the community have been eroded by another group of leaders who've arisen, and they're more sort of flashy than Paul. They want to take money from the community. They've even used the fact that Paul won't take money from the community to sort of arouse suspicion. Like, what's he trying to do here? Like, why are we taking your money, but he's not? So it's quite bizarre. Um, 
And in those times, um, maybe things haven't changed that much for this one, I had a picture of, of Zuma. A group could be judged by their, their leader. <laughs> and um, Paul wasn't, he was very countercultural. He wasn't flashy, he wasn't um, uh, well, very well spoken, he wasn't like a big cool guy, he was a short redhead guy. Um, so I think that might have been a problem for the Corinthians. And some church members have now asked Paul in his absence, they're like, please can you write us a letter to explain why, why we should allow you to even have a say in our community. So I thought about this for a long time and I thought about the Deidas. Now you guys will have to stand because I don't have a picture of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is so great. There are the Deidas. <laughs> is wearing a red shirt. Um, so the Deidas have served on leadership here for quite a while, probably a lot of you know that, and they've recently been to Mexico for six months, and now they're back. So this is like, Paul's gone off on a mission, he comes back to his lovely church that he loves, like family, like the Deidas are like family to us, he arrives, they arrive at the door, the Deidas, with gifts, and like ready to tell us everything they've learned, and Taryn's like ready for them, and he's like, sorry guys. <clears throat> You've been away for a while. Things have changed while you were gone. You were still contributing money to the church while you were away, and it's weird. Please, please, before you come here, you need to write us a letter of recommendation why you should even be allowed back into this church. So that's like the kind of weird vibe that was going on. <laughs> Sorry, I actually went and read through this message this morning. <laughs> Morning, your name does come a few times, Jim. <laughs> you are the, the new leader that has replaced them. Okay. Flashy one? Yeah, he's flashy. He's flashy. Yeah, look at these pants. <laughs> um, all right, so this last part of this letter that we're reading today, this is like the Deidas being really gracious and saying, okay, all right, cool. We'll, we'll leave and we're going to write a letter explaining why we'd like to come back and be with you guys who are our family. So let's get into it. I'm reading from the message. Um, so Paul has now reluctantly boasted, because he's been asked to explain why, he should, why he's cool, um, and he's reluctantly boasted, and um, this is the next part in Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians. Well, now I've done it. I've made a complete fool of myself by going on like this. But it's not my fault. You put me up to it. You should have been doing this for me, sticking up for me and commending me and not making me do it for myself. You know from personal experience that I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, but I'm not second rate to those <laughs> um, apostles that you're so taken with. All the signs that mark a true apostle were in evidence while I was with you, through both good times and bad. Signs of wonder, signs of power. Did you get less of me or of God than the other churches? The only thing you got less of was responsibility for my upkeep. Well, I'm sorry, forgive me for depriving you. <laughs> Everything is in readiness now for this my third visit, but don't worry, I won't, you won't have to put yourself out. I won't be any more of a bother to you than I was on my previous visits. Children shouldn't have to look after their parents. Parents look after their children. I'd be most happy to empty my pockets, even mortgage my life, for your good. So how does it happen that the more I love you, the less I am loved? And why is it that I keep coming across these whiffs of gossip? about how my self-support is a front behind which I've worked an elaborate scam. Where's the evidence? Did I cheat you or trick you with anyone I sent? I sent Titus and the brothers. Did they deceive you? Um, and didn't we, haven't we always been just above board, just as honest? 
But I hope you don't think that all along we've been making our defense before you, the jury. You are not the jury. God is the jury. God revealed in Christ. And we make our defense before him. And we've gone to all the trouble of supporting ourselves so that we won't be in the way or get in the way of your faith maturing. All right, so we've looked at Paul and his relationship with his family in Corinth. And we've read the passage, so we passed a third of the way. Um, can you guys hear at the back? Okay, great. Okay. All right, so next I'd like to look at Paul's motivation for his responding um, to this request, his manner of responding, and the message he embeds in his response. So those are my three M's, his motivation, his manner, and his message. So I'm well on my way to becoming an epic preacher. So let's start with the first M, Paul's motivation. Okay. At first glance, it might seem like Paul's trying to defend himself like against this personal attack. And, and before, the part that comes before this, he's saying like every, you know, things about himself, he's boasting. But if you look at it a bit more closely, you actually can see what his motivation is quite clearly. And the, an example that I thought of to try and um, illuminate it, is let's say you're driving along the highway and you see a stray dog. Um, running in between the cars. So you stop your car, and now you want to get the dog and put it in your car so you can take it to safety. But as you approach the dog, the dog runs away towards the traffic. So you're very quickly going to have to, with some urgency, like get down to the dog's level, build trust with the dog, and get the dog to come to you and listen to you so that you can catch it and safely put it in your car. And so like you would with the dog on the highway, Paul is desperate for his church child to trust him to hear what his message is. And he can only get them to hear his message and hear about God if they're willing to trust him, let him back to talk into their lives. And it's really important to him that they listen to him and not to these false apostles that are trying to lead them astray. And as Paul says in verse 19 in a different translation, louder. Hmm? Louder. Oh, louder. <clears throat> I hope you don't think that all along we've been defending ourselves to you. No, we are speaking before God and Christ. And everything we've been saying, beloved, is intended to build you up. He isn't making a defense of his character for himself. He's only concerned about what God thinks of him and, and his mission to build up the community. So he needs them to trust him. That's why he agreed to defend himself in the first place. Um, Adam Grant, who some of you might know wrote um, Think Again, says, When you see what people have achieved, you can figure out what they do. When you see what they've sacrificed, you begin to understand who they are. How you choose to spend your time reflects what motivates you, and what you're willing to give up reveals what matters to you. So we know how Paul spent his time um, spreading the message and um, going on mission. And what did he give up? He gave up his resources, he gave up his pride, he gave up his physical comforts, and in the end he gave up his life. He was beheaded for his message. So bringing people into God's kingdom, that's what mattered to Paul, um, more than anything else. Okay, so now we're going to move on to our second M. We've done his, Paul's motivation for responding, now we're going to go on to his manner of responding. Um, Tom Wright, who's a Christian author, he points out the proper way of handling personal attacks is neither to respond in kind nor to protect oneself by building a wall of steel, he says, Paul remains very vulnerable throughout this whole process and has responded to attack patiently and with compassion and a fair amount of humor. Okay, so patiently, compassionate, and humorous. Um, I'm not going to ask Ray to say which of those three I'm good at when um, <laughs> being personally attacked. Um, 
So let's, I'm just going to highlight just a couple of things he says about himself, which is, shows how vulnerable he is. He gives us a real view into his open heart. It's like a, an animal like lying on his back. He says, you should have been doing this for me, sticking up for me and commending me instead of making me do it for myself. And he says, you know from personal experience that though I'm nothing and nobody, I'm not second rate to those apostles. It feels like, like a boyfriend trying to say to his girlfriend, hey, those guys that, you, that, you, that you're chatting up there, what about me? Like, I'm not worse than them. And he says, I have no interest in what you are, only in you. So how does it happen? The more I'm loved, the less you love me. For me, it's almost hard to watch. Like, it's, it's like a, a foundation phase kid walking all the way across the fields to ask a group of kids that he's not friends with if he can play their game. And you just don't know. Like, are they going to say yes? Or are they going to be like, sorry, we've only, already got eight players. And then he has to like, walk all the way back. Um, all right, so we're on to our third M now. We've done his motivation for his, his, for his response and his manner, which was very compassionate and patient and kind. And we're going on to what was the message that was embedded in his response. Um, so when Paul does boast, the only thing he's willing to boast about is his sufferings for God, how he's been used by God, inconvenienced for God. He won't boast about anything else. So it's like Paul saying, stay in your lane. He's saying... Um, He's saying, don't look at everybody else. Just look at what God's given you as your mission and see if you are delivering on that mission. Nothing else matters. In one of his previous letters to the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians, he explains to them why Jesus has turned everything on its head um, when it comes to understanding God's kingdom and what, they would be, what one would want to boast about. He says in 1 Corinthians 21, 22, he addresses the two main cultures of his day, which most of you know were the Jews and the non-Jews, which were the Greeks. And he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling rock to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And he goes on to conclude, Therefore it is written, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So what Paul's pointing out here is that to the two dominant cultures of his day, the people he was speaking to, the whole idea of the, the main founder of your faith or your group being crucified was, was a huge stumbling block. It was, it was not something to boast about. It's hard to imagine... Like today, the cross is just like a symbol of belonging to your faith. But in those days, the cross was a very real thing where you'd be walking into town and there'd be crosses lined up, not always like high like we see in the pictures, just here at eye level. And there was very much just a real death. And the people who were, who were dying on the cross were outcasts from the community usually, people who committed crimes, um, no one that you'd want to associate with. And often it was some, a failed revolutionary, someone who'd like been the founder of some new uh, movement and now his movement has come to an end. So it's not something that they wanted to boast in. It's like turning everything upside down. Like why would you boast about that, that your leader has been crucified? Um, I won't bring Taryn into this, but it would be like <laughs> <laughs> boasting that your leader has now got TB or scabies. You're like, yeah, look, look, this, this guy, yeah, this guy's got COVID. Or, or he's currently um, being charged with fraud. Guys, this is our leader. So, and we can take it one step further back, even than the cross, to Jesus' life. Everything is turned upside down. 
So any prestigious te Jewish teacher of those days would only be like in the temple and associating with those of status and the clean. But whenever you read about Jesus, every story, um, he's associating with the lepers, the tax collectors who were like white collar crime, the prostitutes, the, anyone who was unclean. That's where you'll find Jesus. So he's a king that doesn't want to be served. He's coming to serve his people. And he lands up, instead of being on a throne with a crown, he lands up on a cross with a crown of thorns and a sign saying, King of the Jews, which was like a big mockery. And Paul, too, is also an upside-down founder and leader because he comes, compared to these false apostles, he comes with love and to serve. He doesn't want their money. He's not greedy. Um, he just wants their, their fellowship. He wants them to rejoice with each other, to pray for each other. And that's all he wants. He wants to build up their faith. And I asked myself, what is this message that compelled Paul and Jesus to turn their lives upside down? And what was this good news? And it was a message that God wants a personal relationship with us. That there's no hierarchy in God's kingdom. That everyone is welcome and everyone has faults and no one can earn God's love. And no matter how flawed we may see ourselves, we are not excluded. Um, and it was the message that God's spiritual kingdom was breaking into the world and transforming it. And what we know of the Western view of human rights, um, like the importance of each individual, can actually be traced back to Jesus. Because in those days, it was completely countercultural to say that everybody is a person of value. Because Jesus is saying everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is of value. In those days, you were only of value if you were, like, had status and you were male and you were educated. But he's saying, no, male or female, slave or free, educated or illiterate, um, those criminals, everyone is welcome um, and is seen in the same as having value and having what we would say rights. Um, and although the church has not got this right by a long shot, that is actually the message we built on. Like, that's the message. When I see that message out there, I'm like, hey, that's, that's our message. <laughs> um, all right, so before I draw this message to a close, I said the last part after the three M's is just a short message on loneliness. So we're down to the last couple of minutes. Um, so I'm not going to give you like the three points to counter loneliness. It's just literally, I just want to just shine a light on it just for a moment because it can be a bit of a stigmatized topic. And if anyone here is feeling lonely, please, at the end, like, I'd love you to reach out to one of the members of our team, um, whether it's prayer or to go for coffee or to join one of our small groups. I would love you. We don't want anyone here to feel lonely. So Michael Eaton points out about this passage in chapter 12. He says he wants to show how powerfully damaging suspicion is. So he says, um, Paul's enemies have sown the seeds of suspicion in Corinth. The Corinthians have withheld their love from Paul, and the more he made sacrifices for them, the less they understood him, and the more they criticized him. And you and I, says Michael Eaton, might experience the same ourselves. You might love someone, make sacrifices for them, for their well-being, but you, you may not be able to reach them, or they may reject you, and it's a very painful human experience. But of course, it's precisely the experience that Jesus went through. He died in a great loving sacrifice for the very people who were crucifying him. So on loneliness, last year, um, a Harvard study showed that one out of three respondents to the national survey reported feeling lonely frequently, almost all the time, or all the time. 
which was up by 10%. And the most disturbing part is that two out of every three people aged between 18 and 25 said they reported feeling lonely almost all the time. So that's up hugely from pre-pandemic times. And the study goes on to point out that young adults are particularly vulnerable to loneliness because they're often moving between their family of origin to their, their chosen family, and they don't have those sort of relationships that are buffering them. Hello? <laughs> Um, so I experienced this when I moved from Port Elizabeth to Cape Town and um, study medicine. I was 18. I left my family of origin. I remember them driving away from ECT and the thought that went through my mind, I remember it like yesterday, was there goes everyone who loves me in Cape Town. I'm now completely alone. <laughs> And um, the night before, I'd actually called my parents to, there was a club that everyone had gone to from res, and I didn't have a problem with clubs, but I was just completely uncool, and I just didn't fit in. And I went across the road, I didn't have a cell phone yet, and I phoned them from the ticky box, and I said, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I need to go home with you tomorrow. <laughs> and they came, and they were like, you're going to have to stay for six months. And the, I, I was so homesick that eventually I was crying every day, and I made myself a calendar, and I was only allowed to cry one day in the week. <laughs> that was the only way I got through it. And then it reached the point where Sunday would arrive and I was like, okay, now's my chance to shed a tear. Actually, I don't really feel like crying today. Am I really willing to go for another week? Anyway, so that's how I got through that incredible loneliness. <laughs> um, anyway, so we don't need Harvard to tell us about loneliness. We all know about loneliness. And especially in this pandemic, where a lot of us have been isolated from some of our connections. Um, they say loneliness is a gap between the, the quality connections that you feel you should have and the quality connections that you actually do have. Mm. My eight-year-old daughter says, I think I know what loneliness is. No. It's that feeling when there's no one in the world that's quite like you. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy it. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Okay, I'm nearly finished now, guys. Um, are you still hearing me okay? So after Jesus and his closest friends, who were, the apostles, who were the apostles, made a long trip to Jerusalem where Jesus knew he was going to die and defeat Satan and start this whole kingdom revolution, at this point, his apostles still don't understand that that's what they're doing. They still think they're going to Jerusalem to take down the Roman occupation by the sword. I don't know if they, how they thought they were going to do this, but that's what they think they're doing. So Jesus addresses Peter and he says, um, it's the night of the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, which was Passover. He says, Peter, my dear friend, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Satan has obtained permission to come and sift you all like wheat and test your faith. But I have prayed for you, Peter that you would stay faithful to me no matter what comes. Remember this, after you have turned back to me and have been restored, make it your life mission to strengthen the faith of your brothers. And Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen. But Jesus looked at him and prophesied, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me three times, deny that you even know me. And then Jesus explains to them again that they're going to need to protect themselves and he's about to be crucified and he doesn't want them to die as well because they need to continue the message. And they still don't get it. They're like, we've got two swords. And he's like, you still don't understand what I'm doing here. And, 
And then he goes and prays, and he asks them to stay awake, and they fall asleep. And he's like, come on, guys. <laughs> and then eventually one of his friends, Judas, comes leading a mob and kisses him on the cheek. And he says, Judas, are you really going to betray me with a kiss on the cheek? And when I read that, I just feel like Jesus' loneliness as a human in that moment. I mean, he had God, but, like we do, but he was alone. Nobody understood what was going on. And his friends are like dropping like flies, and um, no one's there to, under- to support him. So the pandemic might make you feel alone when you swim upstream or fight for your principles, you might feel alone. Paul felt alone, I'm sure, when he's writing a letter to defend himself to those that he considers his family. And Jesus would have had times when he was alone. It's like the boy approaching the playground when Paul comes back to Corinth. <laughs> you just don't know what they're going to do. Um, so I'm going to close now. I just want to highlight something that Paul and Jesus had in common that we also have. They had their relationship with God, and they had the Holy Spirit. So even if they were alone in the humanity, they had God with them at all times. And however muddled and messy it was, both Paul and Jesus, and we have this opportunity too, stuck into their relationships and their community, which wasn't easy. I mean, you see Paul um, with this messy letter and this whole messy situation. You see at one time Jesus saying, how much longer must I be with you? It's like so frustrating. Like no one, his friends don't even get it. But they both stuck in. And there's one last sentence I'm going to read before I pray. It's from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and it's about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, And because of Jesus, when you who are not Jews heard the revelation of truth, you believed in the wonderful news of salvation. Now we have been stamped with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. It's given to us like an engagement ring, as the first installment of what's coming. He is our hope promise of a future inheritance which seals us until we have all of redemption's promises and experience complete freedom. The things may be hard for us, but God is with us. My favorite verse which I had up on the presentation is, Be still and know that I am God. This makes me feel like God is, is with us. I'm going to close for us in prayer now. Thank you for listening. Um, so just if you want to close your eyes um, Lord thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us and strengthen us through hard times thank you that we are never alone with you thank you that you have grace to love us as we are and that you use every hard time to strengthen us and our characters I pray that we draw on the strength you've built in us to pour into the lives of those around us thank you for the gift of community may we never take it for granted Amen